Hello and welcome to Angel's Costumes Behind the Scenes. I'm Jeremy Angel. I'm Richard Green. And I'm Jonathan Lippmann. This week I'm chatting with British costume designer Annie Simons. Annie and I go back many years from the very early days of her career and my career at Angel's in Shaftesbury Avenue. But what, what I found particularly interesting about our chat was how she entered the industry and how she became absorbed by osmosis with the whole experience of costume. Already being a very creative person in terms of what she studied and, and, and her hobbies as a child, as a student growing up, and the exposure that she had to theatre and the, the, the world of dressing up and storytelling is so resonant with so many of the other people that we've interviewed through this series. And it was um, exciting to, to reveal all of that with Annie because she's got a very unique take on how the industry works and how she can best apply her creative talent to the projects that she has been privileged to work on, of which most of them have been with Britain's most innovative and creative directors around Terence Davis, Derek Jarman, John Mabry, Stephen Polyakoff, Isaac Julian. You know, these are all artists, stroke directors, and, and they all draw out of Annie the essence of what makes her tick, her passion and her enthusiasm. Yeah, it's a pretty rock and roll career, isn't it, she's had? Yeah, yeah. And, and she applies that rock and roll language to a lot of the projects that she's been involved with. And has a unique perspective on history and fashion and art and, and you know, the history of art and, and what that means in terms of characterisation and storytelling. Well, we hope you enjoy this conversation. We've also been enjoying your feedback. If you have any questions or queries, please email us at podcast.angels.co.uk. You can visit our website, which is www.angelsbehindthescenes.com, or you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are forward slash costume podcast. And here is Jonathan's chat with Annie Simons. So lovely, Annie. I'm thrilled and delighted that we are here together chatting on the Angels podcast behind the scenes. Quite right, too. <laughs> and um, it's a true pleasure, actually, because I have to tell our audience that I have watched and digested your process over many, many years. And from the early days back in Shaftesbury Avenue, Angels Shaftesbury Avenue. Oh. And I've always been intrigued by how collaborative and kind and intense your, your work process is because I've seen how your teams respond to your artistic endeavours. And I would say that out of, you know, and, and I would say that your work delivers. <laughs> In, in terms of its artistic spirit and energy. And I and the reason why I made that little statement is because I, I, I'd love to know whether that's something that you have always had an ability to, to do. I think I'm governed by a need to be listened to. And I think fundamentally being a designer, as a, a costume designer, maybe other designers, I don't know, is, is, is quite a lonely process. And if you can garner support and loyalty from the team around you, I mean, it's not intentional with me. I think I just have a kind of process where I, I'm, I'm sort of very enthusiastic about mm. what I think. And hopefully that permeates... Oh, it does. I, I've watched, I've witnessed it. But when, when you were a youngster then growing up and, you know, getting involved in activities, youth activities, even childhood activities, were, were you a team leader then? Cool. Now, this is going to sound completely idiotic, but I think I was iconoclastic in that I was usually on my own. I spent a lot of my childhood on my own and mm. I spent the rest of the time trying to seek out people to hang out with. Not for their approval, not for, but just so I didn't feel 
quite as bonkers, I don't think. But having said that, I'm quite happy on my own in a funny kind of way. So like most of us, I had quite an unusual childhood. I moved a lot. Hmm. Like, you know, my I think I grew up in the back of a car um, <laughs> with a plant in my ear. And we didn't live together really as a family till I was about nine. So I had a very kind of, you know, I had I had great resources. I mean, I had great people around me. I was very loved and very sort of, you know, I had I had extraordinary adults in my life, but I was also, I suppose, I think, lucky enough to have had created my own sort of internal landscape, which has stood me well. And so I, I think the funny thing is, is having other people around me is, it always feels so transitory to me. You just think, oh, you might as well make the most of it because it's all going to change. Which is certainly does in the film industry. Well, yeah, in the in the true spirit of the entertainment industry, that you 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 form a family with, you know, it becomes like a capsule of of what your life is at that moment, which is it is transient, and that probably goes back and reflects back to your 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 upbringing, and as you just described. And you sort of make your family where you are. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I'd, it's interesting because, I mean, I don't think it's irrelevant. I have three children that I brought up on my own and, you know, it hasn't been easy for them. But I think what I've expected from them is what I had in myself and that's not necessarily true. And that's a sort of internal dialogue that is, you know, can sustain you through anything, actually. Did you ever express that that the way that you the way that you realised you were bringing them up was was partly the way that you were brought up? No, it, it's it's. I mean, honestly, it just takes it takes a lot to understand why why people do what they do. And part, the reason why I'm why I'm 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 if you like broaching this aspect of of the life that you know you lead as a designer is because we have an audience who are listening and aware of how complex this um, industry is and how and and how and what the environments are that we work within in terms of the pressure and and also that very very sensitive issue of life work balance mm. and how and how you try and maintain a life that one would consider as normal whatever normal is and what you're hoping to attain through artistic endeavor and you know as 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 I've explained to you when when we were chatting about this whole interview process that it's essentially um, a series of questions that we that we structured right at the very beginning and it's yeah. the same questions that we we ask every practitioner the different questions for supervisors than to designers and makers to you know, mm. textile designers, and but it's but it's the same questions, and and everyone has their own take and their own view of of how their industry and how their practice is formed, and that's what makes, in my opinion, that's what makes this such a fascinating podcast to to be involved with, and I suppose partly why I'm I'm talking about all of this as as well as the live work balance is that out of all of the transience in terms of your childhood where where did the creativity come in what was the what was that light bulb moment I don't know it was survival I mean to me having an inner landscape or a visual landscape that totally belonged to me was is survival and was that through reading books or watching movies or listening to music or well, all of them all of the above but you know I mean I'm of a generation where my mum would leave me in the library for half a day where she'd go shopping or, you know, I'd get dropped off at the um, Saturday morning pictures. Mm. That was your world. Mm. And, and, I mean, I read, I read everything I could lay my hands on mm. from a very early age till, oh God, I mean, I still do. I'm sick to death of the bloody fucking screens, actually. I, can't, I, I don't really <laughs> want to watch anything else. I've, Give me a piece of paper. Well, it's not 
just that. It's 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 a different experience. You know, you can read someone's words and you can internalize them. Whereas when you watch a kind of film or something on screen, it's what you have is a you have an experience that you kind of enter into. And what I desperately want to do is go back into my own thought process. So reading, I mean, this whole lockdown thing has been extraordinary. I've read loads and it's been really liberating. I've actually felt as fresh as I did, I don't know, decades ago, uh, intellectually, mentally, which is fantastic. Is it reading that's, um, that takes you into another dimension in terms of fantasy or is it... Is it learning about? Is it human psychology? What What's the what What drives you? Well, I you know I, I mean I am visually driven as well as ideas driven. Of course, going back to the light bulb moment. I mean, my grandmother was an extraordinary. My, my maternal grandmother was an extraordinarily elegant woman. She, mm. you know, I used to sit in her bed in Edinburgh and read her vogues on this kind of pink sateen eiderdown and my mum made all my clothes my mother was a beautiful dressmaker and quite eccentric when I think about what I wore and how sort of how strange it must have looked in the east coast of Scotland in the 1960s you know not that I appreciated it then because I just wanted stuff out the catalogues like all my other friends you know but I was surrounded by women who had a of and I you know they they had their own identity I mean for what for whatever reason I I I don't know what the light bulb moment was it was a kind of natural progression I say because because I did fine art at art school I didn't do design I didn't Mm. do fashion or costume design and in fact I, I worked in fashion and costume but I think it was just because you know making clothes and it expressing ideas through clothes was second nature it was also it was also a survival mechanism because that's how I could earn money yeah and did you know were you aware at that point that that you could realize artistry through designing clothing in context and narrative whether it's theater film or no, I mean, what I've always been interested in is subtext. And, and to this day, if if I can't find a way into a script that sort of gives me gives me my own narrative, shall we say, it doesn't yeah. really interest me. I mean, but I mean, having said that, you, you, you find you can find God in anything, if you know what I mean, you can, even the worst scripts, there's salvation in it. And I've had to do some pretty terrible stuff to survive because I'm a mother of three children on my own, you know. I mean, you know, that's what I'm, I'm not joking about survival. A lot of the choices I've made are about, like, I've got no money. What's happening next? I'll do that, <laughs> you, know, it's, you know. which is a bit of a shame in a way because I think possibly, no, it's not a shame, you know. I've, 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 I live a, you know, the duality of my existence is about having children who I deeply, deeply care about and, Mm. you know, are a primary force. But the creativity and the need to express yourself as well as earn the money is equally as strong. So, I I mean, that can can lead to quite severe conflict at times, internal conflict. You and I are of of a similar generation well we're the same generation but we um, but we didn't have similar upbringing bringing but I I know I know that you were luckily enough you 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 were able to be involved with the National Youth Theatre and I I know that was a very important point in terms of your coming away from you know your family life and into an environment where you were sort of like not many people out there will remember this but the double deckers or kind of come on board, come on board, come on board, (laughs) and then if anyone needs to know more about that they can YouTube something I'm sure it will be there but essentially (laughs) that forming that gang that camaraderie of like-minded individuals living in London in you know which is which is still the case you know they have a membership that comes down to London to do a summer season and I'm a very, very keen supporter of, of theirs and have been for many years. And they've also got regional branches now, which is... That's right. It means, yeah. you know, people who don't have the kind of means don't have to come down and live in 
they, they can do it in Newcastle or Leeds or Bristol or Liverpool, I don't know, Manchester even, I think. Yeah, they have, it's, it, they, they basically cover every city and the Arts Council is very supportive of, you know, their, their, their remit that is, well, it's exactly what their title is. And mm-hmm. they have, if you like, thrown out the, it was Michael Croft, wasn't it? Yeah, Michael Croft. Michael Croft. <laughs> the most imitated man on earth. <laughs> yeah, and then um, Ed Wilson. Yeah, and, yeah. and um, now Paul Roseby, and and they 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 are inordinately inspirational, not just to backstage members, but also to performers. You know, whether it's Helen Mirren or uh, Matt Lucas, who who we've got in an interview coming up, and it's it's just it's remarkable what an organisation like that can do to form young adults. Well, yeah, as an experience, I mean, I. Absolutely. I mean, I was lucky enough to have discovered the theatre when I was quite young in Exeter, where I was a teenager. Mm. Stumbled into the, uh, I think we were on a school trip, and I went into the wardrobe and met Maria Liljefosch, who was the head of wardrobe. And she was so charismatic and the sort of, you know, the sort of knowledgeable chemistry of carbon tetrachloride was Frags, cheap washing powder and coffee and this intensity of making stuff to get the camaraderie. It mm. was really intoxicating. And Yeah, so I, I went off to do the National Youth Theatre one summer. I think I must have been about, God, I don't know. I think I had my 16th birthday there. God knows what my mother was thinking of, sending me off to London on my own. Did you know about them through through school or through the Northcott? No, I, I mean, I, I, I belonged to this thing called the Exeter Northcott Youth Theatre, which was a right laugh. And um, I had this, well, I was in love with this boy called Phil Pentecost. And he, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, extraordinary. He he was extraordinary, actually. He, um, he went up to do the National Youth. His mother was a dancer. And she used to take classes at the Exeter Northcott Youth Theatre, Barbara Pentecost. And she went up, he went up to do lighting as a technician. And he said, oh, God, you really ought to go. It's really good, you know, blah, 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 blah. So the next year I applied and got in, in, in wardrobe, in, you know, costume. And it was absolutely mind-blowing. I kind of went up from... Devon in a hippie dress and came back a punk. It was so <laughs> seismic, the experience. And I lost my virginity, which was quite high time too, probably before you should have. But I mean, you know, that's what we did in those days. But um, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And to be immersed in, you know, an ensemble company of very young, very excited, but very well-led people. You know, we were, I won't say we were looked after, but we were led well. And I, I, I think, you know, we were lucky because we had so much fun and, you know, it didn't really matter, you know. We were just there for the experience. And, of course, I went back to Devon after that and it's like, oh, God, I can't stay here. And it, I was on the milk train up to London every weekend until I finally got to art school at Hornsey in 1979. Yeah, no. I mean, I think theatre is is an is a very very important experience, and I'm always interested when I get CVs when I see people have done theatre because it, to me, it, it you know they understand the the importance of collaboration and hard work and the esprit de corps and mm. you know, we do have in film, but to me, I mean, to be honest, I see less and less of it. I don't. You know, as things become more corporate and more sort of regimented. Well, it's a more it's a more dislocated process because yeah. because of the nature of casting, because of the nature of scheduling, because of budgets. Also, the and... expectations of different generations. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we 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 had to we had to kind of learn it all ourselves. We had to figure it out, and now you get a bloody degree in it, and they still don't know what they're doing. And I, I, I mean. I find I find a, a weird sense of, you know, you get these incredibly articulate on paper, on Instagram, on whatever media platform, confident people 
who are qualified by a degree and yet they have no sense of humility they have no sense of well it's an entitlement it is an entitlement i mean it sounds it sounds atrocious but i just think why don't you respect what older people know and what older people have done and what you know you you can't just click instagram and think you understand that because in a funny i mean you can replicate that you can reappropriate that mm. but you can't have lived that and i i don't i don't honestly i don't know whether there is as confident as they appear to be i think probably but it doesn't it doesn't matter it's it's the fact that they have in their minds uh, reached a point where they can whether it's through what they're told or whether it's through their own process of education they've reached a point where they can enter into an industry that actually has more respect for people that have gone through the ranks and a lot of people that come in at that graduate level mm. um need to need to then practically take a step back well, and immerse themselves in exactly what you've just been describing mm. because it's you know it's it's a it's it's um a cliche but the smell of the grease paint well it's it's, it's experiential isn't it it's not academic and it's not i mean also i mean i think what i find really difficult you know, difficult that education is, it, you know, it is a business and it won't tell people that they're crap at things. You know, I, I grew up in a time where we, we literally had to figure, we took responsibility for ourselves. And this mm. is what I find the difference is, is, you know, a lot of young people, they come in and they, they, they kind of don't take responsibility for themselves because there's this sort of nannying education system that won't fail people because if they fail people they'll get sued and some people just aren't fucking good enough you know end off they're not good enough they're not going to cut it they don't have the balls and they don't have the spirit and they don't have the they don't have the talent and i i think a lot of these colleges are mis misrepresenting the world they're going into and also while we're on the subject you know just they the, the high ratio of designer graduates that are coming out compared to the jobs that are available and the other roles within costume that aren't being accessed. Well, we, we've discussed that, you know, you, you and I have discussed that in terms of the roles yeah, of where supervision. Where are the supervisors? Where are the coordinators? Where are these people who are vital and they're really good jobs? Yes. And you yeah. will always be employed. There, there, there are none around, and it, and it is—it's a real issue at the moment. It's a huge issue because, as designers, we can't do the jobs because we don't have our teams. Because everybody wants to be a bloody designer, and frankly, you get to be a designer when—well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like anything corporate. I mean, they'll be looking for fresh blood and you know young people who can tolerate a a system that it I find frankly creatively really destructive a lot of the time. I mean, you know, I'm I'm ballsy enough and possibly experienced enough and Well you can navigate your way through it. But the only reason why you can push back and navigate is because in in my opinion, and this is where I started the conversation, is that you I believe that you fully understand every aspect of your department and because of the because of your approach and because of where you started and because of how you have acquired your experience whether it was your you know doing the work for the BFI whether it was the work that you did for Derek Jarman whether it was it you you have had that collaborative experience that actually in a lot of ways doesn't exist anymore and that's where that's where the industry has shifted and you know where you entered the industry and where it is now you you almost wouldn't recognize it because it wasn't an industry you know what it was when i when i first arrived in london it was a lot of posh white boys who liked pretty girls and then there were the homosexuals and then there were the marginal others and because for whatever reason maybe I was too 
bullshit, not pretty enough, not posh enough. I luckily, and thank God, I, I gravitated towards and accepted by gay filmmakers, black and Asian filmmakers, Sankofa, the Black and Asian mm. Film Collective, mm. the BFI, who who were great supporters of alternative narrative. So once you had done your your work in that arena, did you then step into like BBC Films and and Screen Four and when they were emerging? Um, I don't know. So it was a kind of muddy muddy waters. I mean, I worked in fashion as well as pop promos and. I didn't know that. Who did you work for? Fashion. I, Fashion, I, I, yeah. Well, I had my own label called Manifest and I went to Italy to design only for a season because I wasn't trained, you know. Wow. They were, they were literally scooping people off the street. And I, I, I was shopping for a, a pop promo for Nick Roeg, actually, for, what's his name, John Waters. Um, and I was in this boutique in St. Christopher's Place and, the, the, and I was buying something and the guy said oh I really like Italian guy I really like your top where's he from so that xenophobia it's a crap Italian accent whatever it is it's pretty crap it's pretty crap and sorry Marco I'm sorry I'm sorry and I said oh I made it and he said I don't believe you so because I was young and beautiful of course I took it off and threw it at him shamelessly and there was my label manifest and he said would you like to go and design in Italy and I said yeah of course I would I was 24 he said, and he rang me, and then, honestly, the next week I was on a plane <laughs> to Bologna. I worked in this, this uh, factory trying to produce Vendemode, which is Italian for, you know, Pretaporte. And we, we produced a, a line, but it, it, it didn't sell. It wasn't, I didn't really know what, I, and they didn't know what, to be honest, they didn't know what they were doing. But what they were doing was trying to cash in on that whole um, London, yeah. The London thing. Hyper Hyper and the early early Vivian Westwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Body map and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, I was making stuff and Boy George was wearing it, George Duran Duran were wearing it, you know, and it was getting quite a lot of press. But, I mean, in that respect, I was a fashion designer, but in terms of productivity, I didn't... I was still selling on in markets. Well, again, the industry during that time, because I, I entered the industry in the in the early 80s, and yeah. one of the first permissions to express were were all the pop videos that were taking place, whether it was yeah, Culture Carp, when it was Wham, and yeah. it was seen as a, the, the most vital form of, of, of medium, and alongside commercials. There was money, you know, people yes. do what they liked. It was a playground. And yeah. not only that, none of us had to pay rent. I mean, I lived in squats till I was 28. And so, you know, we didn't have that kind of sense of accountability in a sense. We were, we, were pl- we were playing, but we worked bloody hard. You know, I don't think we were mucking about. We were working at our craft. We were working at... Well, London, London was a completely different environment to live in in terms of what was what was expected of one and it was it was so much cheaper to exist and and cheaper to get around so it, if you know if you lived in bow or stoke newington it it was you know you had buses and transport and all we, day and also think things had a things took longer we didn't we didn't you know we didn't have mobile phones we had we, i mean pages didn't arrive until the mid to late 80s, you know what I mean? So Was the first mobile phone you got given to you by a production company? No, I bought it, I think. It was a Nokia 1230. Oh, not one of those big blocks? No. no. But, I mean, I, you know, from art school, I w- went from a squat in Bloomsbury, Georgian house in Bloomsbury, and I joined in with a building in Curtin Road in in shoreditch which was squalid it was bloody freezing and assorted images were on the top floor and they designed record sleeves and so they had all the pop stars coming in and then on the middle floor there was me judy blame andy the furniture maker penny beard who did printing la paz who did that was annie la paz and lucy morahan did sets for pop promos and 
somebody oh Teresa the rubber girl who was a bit odd but anyway um, and then on the lower ground floor there was a recording studio so it was like Andy Warhol's factory you know the sort of Malcolm Garrett Cummings and the Gary. yeah 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 and you know we'd make stuff for them and then work on their pop promos and blah de blah de blah and is that where you came across John Mabry and Derek and Bailey and all? Um, how did I meet no I met um, well I was at I knew Judy Blaine from Exeter because he was Chris Barnes then and I and he was you know part of that scene I suppose but it wasn't I mean, I, I was doing graduation films at the National Film and Television School because you couldn't learn to be a costume designer in those days. You had to kind of do it on the for film. You could do it at, yeah. in theatre um, for theatre in uh, well, places like Wimbledon. But uh, I, I was attaching myself to graduation films at the National Film and Television School, and I met someone called Kath Peter Lanzutsky who was a production designer, and she said to me one day, oh, my friend Sandy's looking for an assistant for a film. I said, oh, all right, I'll meet her. And, you know, I went down to the, this house in this Gothic horror house in Hackney, and Sandy opened the Sandy Powell opened the door, and she had, like, red dripping off the ends of her hand. She'd just been chopping up some beetroot, and I thought she'd murdered someone. But we just kind of we just kind of hit it off immediately, and I I became her assistant on Caravaggio, which is where I met Derek Jarman to work with. Although I had met him uh, at art school, he'd come up to give a lecture, and I, I was right. really I'd just seen um, the Tempest, and I was overwhelmed with his kind of kindness and his generosity and his enthusiasm. You know, mm. I thought he was so cool, but he he was so encouraging. So yeah, I met Sandy. We got on, and I had this studio in Curtain Road, this costume making studio. So we we started off Caravaggio there, and then moved to on Isle of Dogs and Canary Wharf, uh, where the studios were, and we continued making there. So so that where I met Derek through that and all the other extraordinary creative, you know, Kareth Wynne Evans, probably John Mabry. Actually, I'm not sure how I met John Mabry. I used to share a flat with Alan MacDonald, who was John Mabry's best friend, who tragically died a few years ago. Well, Kareth's a wonderful artist. He is. And and then in that house that Sandy lived in was Nigel Lowry and... Oh, that's right. um, There was a whole little... Artistic central squalor. It was squalor. Was all I can get. Squalid. <laughs> and I lived around the corner on the top floor of a tower block, which was extraordinary. You know, penthouse now. Couldn't get it for less than two million. But when you, when you reflect back, do you think there was? Do you think there was a plan? No. The reason why I'm asking you that is because, again, get just touching back on that graduate entry level where they are it, it's drummed into students going through a costume design degree that you know you have to have a target you have to have you have to set yourself a goal and which is partly the reason why these students come out with such roaring ambition without proper focus and I just I, I so I ask you the, you the question I just asked you in context to that is that you're you're work you're being industrial you're working you're immersed in a world you're you're creating but yet you had no plan no i think i think what we were driven by was experience and i mean someone like derek was so charismatic as was john mabry and sandy we sort of found each other we made our own art school in a sense to anybody is just go for the experience it's like don't just expect the unexpected and, you know, if a door opens, walk through it. Just, yeah, be a bit freer about it. Yeah, freer. be free about it because, you know, who, who, who the hell knows what's going to happen? I mean, you know, the whole industry could dry up. I mean, who knows? We've had one recession. That's what I find interesting at the moment. There's a, there's a whole battery of young people who have the confidence to demand all these things within the industry and yet they have no idea what it's like 
for that. Well, maybe they do now after COVID. Maybe that's it. Maybe this is their writer's strike. I don't know. You know, it's like things can change at any minute. Don't trust mm. anything. You have to have internal resources. I think the thing is, when we were kids, our world and, you know, London and Soho and all those sort of demi-worlds were, were attracting people who didn't fit in anywhere else. And now what I'm finding is there's quite a lot of people who are coming, well, maybe there needs to be, people who are literally factory floor workers in a sense. But maybe, you know, the, the nature of what we do in, in, in sort of big television requires that mm. level of fodder. It's a rude mm. thing to say. But, you know, there isn't, there isn't that much room in the industry for free thinking anymore. Mm. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, when I met Sandy, and actually, you know, it wasn't until I met Sandy that I actually understood that it was okay to think that thinking creatively was bona fide because she she always had that extraordinary confidence permissible yeah well she she had confidence and in, in herself yeah no yeah. and 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 still and still yeah, does yeah. An amazing amazingly sort of experience just so just going moving along in the context of your career one of the one of the observations that i have made about your work is that a lot of it is uh, imbued in creative narrative in the mm. sense that you haven't worked on a lot of projects that have involved actual reenactment of real people um love is the devil is a, is a notable example of of real of a real person and you're about to you're about to do a project about Wilfred Owen aren't you yeah, but generally speaking, you're, you you've artistically interpreted Dickens and novels and you know hi- historical characters, but do you, do you know? But a lot of realms of fantasy, and and that process is so complex and relies on huge resources in terms of support and makers and workrooms, mm. and, and also working in foreign countries. You know, Budapest and yeah. Prague. And, South Africa yeah. and wherever yeah given given the constraints you know given the fact that you're you've got the kids and they're decisions that you've made based on you know economic need but also artistic needs you know you've 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 got an agent and you've you you weigh up the pros and the cons and presumably you know you make a decision based on all those factors is is there a project that that that, that has most excited you well, I mean, to be honest, I think Love is the Devil was the most ex- one of the most exciting things, because working with John Mabry and Alan MacDonald in a way that was, I mean, you cited it as the one that had real people in it, but those people weren't, you know, they were real in one form, but in the film they're real in another form. And, you know, we had we had very kind of interesting aesthetic... Um, limitations that were liberating I don't know how else to put it you know we we had no money and we had a fantastic script and a fantastic ensemble of minds John Johnny Matheson shot it John Mabry wrote it and directed it Alan McDonald designed it Daniel Craig film Derek Jacobi yeah oh yeah Tilda I mean the cast were phenomenal but I think you know visually I think what it was was a. Uh, it was just I don't know. It was just very. It was like work. It was like doing something at art school. It it felt very normal to me to to work in that way and and fulfilling and exciting. Was that a BFI film? Yeah, it was. It was. And do you remember who your supervisor was on that film? Well, I don't know. I don't think I had one. I don't, think, I don't think I knew what they were then. You see, that's the thing. We were so unstructured. It's like, you know, Sandy. I was Sandy's assistant. And I said, you know, I must have been the worst assistant in the world. I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't know what she was doing. None of us knew what we were doing. We were just kind of figuring it out. But, you know, somehow the intention and, and, and the sort of dynamic was there. You know, so we just figured it out. I, I, I can't. I don't think I had a supervisor. But tell me if you 
that's fine the figuring it out and and everyone gives everyone a little bit of leeway but what would what would happen if you came across a prickly performer who wasn't prepared to indulge you figuring it out what happened to how how did how did you approach that I think then people were much a bit more relaxed really I mean no there weren't any st- I mean Daniel Craig wasn't bond then you know it was like well, he, the only thing he didn't like was the hand-painted suit I did for him. I got him a suit from a charity shop and painted stripes on it with emulsion paint to give it to give it a kind of grotesque, like a pinstripe suit, but it was grotesque, so he was trying to fit in with a world that he didn't belong to. Duh. Um, he, he hated that, and I just said, we have to wear it. You know, you're going to be shot in a, a dirty mirror anyway. Nobody's going <laughs> to... But I mean, I mean, you know, you weren't. We weren't dealing with sort of agents and egos. It was a collaborative thing. Yeah, it really was. I, I mean, I, I I dread the crap that arrives before artists these days. You think, oh God, what have we got coming through the door? And nine times out of ten, everybody's fine. You know, they just want mm. to work in the process. But I mean, there are. It is complicated because I mean, quite a lot of actors. Have, aware of that image beyond the piece that you're doing and they, they sort of you know that that comes well it comes with their agents it doesn't always come with them so I wouldn't wear that and you think well, why not and then you find out because they wore it in their last thing and you just think oh fuck off you know it's so irrelevant it's not mm. about you know it's not about branding you as a, but of course it's about branding I mean I think that's the trouble the world will well, the world we're working in unless you're lucky enough to work in a very, you know, with great independent thinking producers, which I have done, I have to say. I've worked with great, great people, even in these massive, multi-produced things. There's been great people in there. There's always great people in there. Well, that's what keeps you going. It's about branding a lot of the time. I'm not interested in fucking being a brand monitor. You know, if if you can't deal with my maverick thinking, you're probably not the right person for the job basically <laughs> there is that aspect to to the work and obviously the the more expansive the project in that uh, well dracula being an example um was it da vinci uh, da vinci's demons was the first american thing i did after bbc stuff because I, I mean, you know, I courted that i wanted to know what that was like i wanted to know what it was like to work with studios and, you know, renumeratively, it made a difference. Mm. But, you know, hanging on to that sense of authorship was hard. And, I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing that destroys you is if you feel so much decision-making is, is, seems to happen at a corporate level. And I will always push back against that. But I think quite often what they're looking for is people who just shop for them. And that's hard. That is hard because as a designer, you have to have your narrative. You have to have your storyline. You have to have, you know, you're designing the whole film. You're not shopping for individuals. You're not. You're seeing the bigger picture. You do. And, you know, which is why, you know, you always have to find the person in that team who speaks the same language as, you know, who you can you can have the dialogue with. And do you, do you get that, do you, apart from a showrunner, do you get that from from your team? Would you say that it's important that your costume designer has the, has the same aesthetic, even though their their role within the department is completely different? It's it's a it's aligned to 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 what you're trying to do in the in the sense that they have to support you. Yeah, they do have to support you, and if they don't understand that, it's very tricky, you know, because it is a difficult job and. If you, if you don't have the back of your team, you're screwed. You are screwed and it's very lonely and challenging if somebody's either deliberately undermining that or doesn't have the wit or the intelligence to understand that they're undermining that. Yeah. Um, and I've come across quite a lot of people who've just made me want to curl up and die and within my own team. And that that's horrible. That's horrible because... One needs to be protected within that. And I think they just look at you as somebody who's 
like it's a game of chess. They're going to knock you out. They're going to be the queen. And it's not about that. It's, well, it is. Somebody has to be the bloody queen. But that's, again, back to where I started, is that I, I'm surprised to hear that because I always, I've always seen you as being incredibly inclusive and, as I said, embracing the whole project. Well, up to a point... I mean, I always thought Derek was interesting in that respect and that he, you know, he caught this dialogue and yet ultimately it was his decision. And I think what a lot of what I do is court dialogue so I can hear voices that aren't, aren't just my own banging in my head. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, mm-hmm. the creative process is about, you know, the exchange you have with a maker, with a dyer, with, you know, where that could go where you don't have time to think it through. They can bring stuff to the table, and you know if they're if they're if they're clever, if they're creative, if they've got if they've got their own thing going, they can, they can contribute, don't they? Well, contribute. They... And would you say would you say that in 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 looking looking over your reflecting on your career, an environment like Angels can 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 kind of push that push that creativity forward in terms of what using using a supply house and I don't just mean angels I mean the resource of of existing clothing yeah, because I know yeah. so much of what you do is 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 fa- fantasy led you know it's fan- it's it's fictitious narrative which demands an aspect of creativity that is more than just dealing with biographical drama well i mean the thing is Nothing has any sense unless you root it in something that's humanly recognisable. And I think, you know, the sort of, the, the big joy and the particular joy of angels, I might say, is that you can wander around there and be fed with ideas and shapes mm. and play. I mean, I've always found it easy to play and experiment at angels. Well, that's my first memory of you actually, is is probably Bargy on the Beach and the playing. Mm. The sort of the, the formation of things that you would bring in from shops, things that you would find within the stock, thing, you know, the the ethnic aspect, the the dealing with the production on a very limited scale, mm. you know, which which that was, with almost like a passion project, wasn't it, in terms of the director and the cast and the the again exactly what you've just been saying about the work with Derek and John Maybury that it was it was it, you were a family yeah and I I remember you on the floor at at uh, Shaftesbury Avenue kind of seven o'clock at night on a Thursday or Friday or something you know always in the summer because that's you know that's when it's that's when the industry's at its busiest yeah. and um, yeah just being very drawn in to your well, yeah your artistic world i think i think i think it you know again it's a sort of survival isn't it it's you sort of you you'd have to you have to find a well you're building up relationships you know you're building up a relationship to the point where now you can come across the threshold and you can play you you are given that liberty and there's a relaxed it's a relaxed relationship because you you can you know how to get the best out of a, a resource a facility like angels and and you know angel angels will get hires angels will get business won't they in the same way that you you may use other houses and have the same relationships whether it's Roger Burton or Carlo Manzi or you know academy you it's it's a it's it is symbiotic but it's also it also comes with years of history yeah it does and, I mean, I remember when I was doing a, I can't mention the name, but we were doing a, a pilot for something that didn't actually go, which was was based in no time at all. And I remember Tim Angel coming up to me and saying, how on earth do you start if you don't know where it's based? And I just thought, oh, I don't really know. I don't know how I start. You just have to find a, find a motif, find a, find something that, triggers a train of thought and do you do that through drawing sketching or is it is it pictures and reference and google books it, it you know I, there's there's no single route in 
I don't have a, a an identifiable process. To be honest, I think every time I start a job, I don't know what the fucking hell I'm doing. And it feels like you're mad and you're just trying to find sense in a load of nonsense. Do you, does that happen to you as a, in a sense of panic? And then it suddenly it lifts and then you've got a little bit of clarity? I don't know. It's, it's I mean, you know, it's a complex job. I mean, half the time you're sort of involved in the nitty-gritty of trying to put your whole team together and battle with the budget. And so the, the sort of, on a subconscious level, you're working out the aesthetics. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, I need to look at imagery. I, I definitely need to go to art galleries and I need to look at cinema and I need to... And I, you know, if it's period, I do like to read around it. I like to know this socioeconomic background the stuff and I like I like to know the truth of sure you know, it's not sure. that pretty close well how how do you how do you get under the skin of a, of a of a character if you haven't got and and then ultimately working with the performer if you haven't got if you haven't got a lot of the answers you don't need to have all of them but you no. need to be able to present a, a, a coherent case for what you're yeah. aiming at yeah, and, no, I mean, um, I think, you know, for me, the intellectual pursuit of truth within design is as important. Absolutely, yeah. Tell me, Annie, because, you know, I, I, I know you're, you're insatiably curious and I think that's what, you know, that's why you've got a lot of friends and that's why, you know, you've, you've got a lot of friends who you've had for a long time. Yeah. And, and is there a single piece of advice that you would that you that you'd offer to somebody that wanted to be a costume designer out uh, of everything that we've been t- discussing? Well, I think I think you just put your finger on it. It's about having a almost like a childlike curiosity, a bewilderment about whatever it is you're going into. Just like try and understand whatever the world is, you know, to try and figure it out, to try and make sense of it. Mm. And, and take opportunities and be curious and be be open. I mean, it's very difficult because I think what's increasingly obvious is the people who can afford to do that are the people who could always afford to do that. And, you know, that they're not always the best. <laughs> you know, they, they don't always have the best stories. You know, it's like the kids who don't have the... The, the, the support of the socioeconomic backgrounds to get them into art school in the first place or you know, whose parents will are happy for them to go into a completely non-aspirational career. I mean, you know, mm. you have to be driven. You have to be driven by some, the design. I'm not talking about the, you know, the sort of, frankly, will never be designers, but work within the costume department, and that's fine. You know, there's camaraderie there. There's money to be made. There's fun. There's travel. There's a lot of things that you can get out of working on big productions. But I think if you want to be a designer, you have to be, you have to have something inside you that I, I wouldn't know how to describe. I don't, you know, it's different for all of us. It's completely different for me. To of course it is. And, but yeah. I also think it's, it's our responsibilities as designers um, to be able to see that characteristic in somebody Yes, and you can you can spot it. You can, you know. Yeah. And it's the chemistry of of making sure that the that when you spot it, it's the you're working on the right project in order to realize it to its best capability. Mm. Well, you know, Annie, that was that was a very revealing insight into in, into your working life and and how you think about things and process thoughts through. And I, I'm I'm really appreciative of you having the time to spend with us talking about it I'm, I'm i'm very happy it's all worked out oh well it's always nice talking to you i think um you know we've known each other so long i know it's it's i think it's almost 40 years oh shut up, shut up. no it's about it is about 37 38 years oh my god oh my god I know. I know. anyway i still feel like the 23 year old that walked into angels for the first time so there you go that's the thing. To do, you, do, you, do you remember when that was? Um, it must have been. It might. It might have been Caravaggio. You know, when we came in with Derek. 
and we looked at all the um, cardinals. But angels, ooh. Shaftesbury Avenue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a treasure trove. That was like heaven. That was like digging around in my granny's, you know, cupboard, finding yeah. sparkly things. <laughs> Which I think have all been stolen by those bloody fashion stylists. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I don't know where they are. Yeah, and, what, and, and, what's, and what's been given back in return is is their, uh, is their, is their samples from the... Oh, well, as long as there's a quid, quid pro quo at some level, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. Well, look, Annie, lovely. Thank you very much. Oh, and, thank you. I uh, really enjoyed that chat. Yeah. See you soon. Very soon. Tomorrow, in fact. <laughs> oh, yes. Bright and early. Super. That was Jonathan's chat with Annie. Uh, Richard, I have your Game of Consequence from our last interview. Uh, Alex Forden worked on Young Victoria with Sandy Powell and Annie started with, I'm going to get it wrong, Cavaggio with Sandy Powell. Caravaggio, sorry, with Sandy Powell. So there's your link. Excellent. There we are. There's, there's, there's our, there's our link. Hooray. I think, I think we should play Happy Families. I'd like Mr. (laughs) Mr. Mr. Green. Mr. Frock, the costumier, or um, Mrs. Frock, or whatever. There were some things that Annie said that I found fascinating. I don't look at things the way she does, and it was interesting to hear them. I mean, the one that stuck with me... Well, she has a unique voice. She does, and the one that stuck with me really much was the comment she made about reading, and she went and comparing it to film and TV, the fact that when you read a book, you internalise it and you create the imagery in your own mind. But when you go to see a film or at the TV, it's an experience. And I just thought that was a fantastic view of looking. That's that. That's why she prefers the reading and stuff, because she gets to internalise it and create the imagery in her own mind, rather than when at film and TV, where you're being told all the details and what they all look like. And I, I, I thought she... She vocalised that so well. Yeah, well, I suppose this is why people complain bitterly, don't they? You know, they read a book and it's their favourite book and they imagine the characters and then they go and watch the uh, the film version or the TV version of it and it looks nothing like the way they've imagined it. And I suppose in Annie's case, she's imagining it and then actually being able to realise it in 3D, mm. as it were. Yeah. Well, and albeit with the constraints of collaboration. Yeah. And what's also interesting about that theory is... Essentially, the process, whether you're reading or watching a TV film, are are, are utterly subjective. And the fact that we, so much of our industry depends on uh, critique and review Mm. and comment. And it's, it's, you know, I, I think that's one of the uglier aspects of our industry, that it's very awards driven and... We, we, we're all at the mercy of somebody saying whether our work is good or bad without knowing the details of the process in which we all have to kind of strive to achieve. I mean, that's a really good example because I know we, we all know of productions and TV series that once they come out, there's tons of comments made online or people as well. And at times it's wrong, but it's the snap judgment that they think this is what they think the period should look like. And the actual designer and the look is completely correct and everything's right, but it just wasn't what they imagined and they, they disagree with it. Yes. And it's, yeah, you're right. It is really subjective and the award driven with it is is quite negative with our industry, which it doesn't get discussed quite a lot when when reviews are wrong, which I suppose goes back into a, the whole thing of Richard can get on his hobby horse about accuracy and <laughs> and detail. But um, it's a really no, it's a really good point to make, which I don't think a lot of people think about. No, and you know, and people from the outside have no idea of the time constraints, the budget constraints. You know, the fact that somebody said, "Well, I don't." I mean, what was that example the other day where somebody was somebody wanted a uniform that was actually green, and then they announced they were going to do it on a green screen, and suddenly it's like, okay, that's <laughs> that's not going to work, is it? So you know, there are, there are all sorts of reasons why things may happen, which of course aren't ever explained. I always think there should be some captions, you know, go up and say, we only had a day to get this costume called from the time <laughs> the actor was cast. Or, um... You know, I think I think it's beholden on on artists to to be enigmatic because I think too much information also spoils the story, spoils the message. You know, one shouldn't always need to explain oneself 
Yeah. Mm. If you if you show how the trick's done, then you've spoiled the magic of the trick. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. But of course, part of the reason we're doing these is to kind of get behind the scenes and actually explain debunk some of the the myth about how things are done you know it is inherently hard work it is a, a a grinding out that sort of and you know this more than i do jonathan but grinding out this creative process and and finding that balance between keeping the director and the actor and your integrity you know all of those things are are, are sheer hard slog they they are and for the most part that's a very important message contribution that I think all of our interviewees have made very clear throughout this process. Yeah. But but what you don't want to do is respond to what we were just talking about in terms of the subjective reaction to yeah. a, to a you don't want to get caught up in in having to justify dotting the i's and crossing the t's in terms of the detail that you one has to go through in order to push an idea or a concept mm. forward. And then the other thing, which is the other, the whole reality which came out in Nat's interview as well, is you can spend all this time doing something, making the accuracy, the detail, researching it, and you see it for all of 0.5 of a second on screen, but you spent two weeks doing it. But you get reward from that, but people obviously don't see it and don't can't give you the reward. It's a personal satisfaction, but it's more about as long as you were happy with it, I suppose, more than the, the exterior or the, the external views. Jonathan, have you had to scrap concepts and go in different directions? No, not overall concepts, but certainly conversations that, that, that take place with performers right. in terms yeah. of how they see themselves and how I see their character. Okay. And just and, and navigating a way through that and finding a, a result that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's time consuming and fascinating and, and, and complex. Okay. So simplistically, if you found say a, a sleeveless dress for an actress and the actress then turns around and says, Well, I hate my, my upper arms and I don't ever want those on show, then you'd have to you'd have to modify that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's but it's a conversation and it's and it's about but you before you actually even presented a sleeveless dress you would know that okay. it would it would be beholden on on you as a uh, as a member of the creative team to have to have sort of prepared for that point mm. and before that effort of searching for the sleeveless dress is put down on paper or found as as an item you would have had that conversation and established that your actress actor is not happy with their whatever right okay um, and and factor that into the into the process okay. the other thing which i i found which you got from that interview with annie which i thought was lovely was the the way she described the intoxicating smell of the theater when she went there the, the first mm. time the coffee granules the cheap mm. cheap washing powder and all of that and uh, again it's another thing you don't often think about of certain smells associated with what we do at times what's the what what's the lyric to that the, 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 the smell of the grease the raw, paint. No the, the, no, the roar of the grease the paint and the, the smell of the crowd is actually... But yeah, the original... No, the original no business like Yeah, they flipped it. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, the smell of that um, that preservative they use in, in equipment and stuff is, is like, oh, God, yes, this is, this is how I've earned my money, how I've earned my living. It was a really interesting chat, Jonathan. I think you've got a lot out of Annie, and I think... Like all the other people that we've interviewed, she's got a unique vision with when she works and she has a very interesting viewpoint. A lot of things she said are very true and need to be heard at times. Mm. Yeah, and, and forcefully expressed. Yes. The next interview we're going to be releasing is my interview with Ian Fulcher. Ian is another ex-member of staff who is uh, <laughs> and now a designer, but he also comes from that crew that we had um, at one point in time at Angels. He was there with Nat, he was there with Bart, he was there with quite a lot of the people who are coming through at quite a senior level now and as designers and supervisors as assistants and all of that and it was a a lovely chat with Ian from the the sunny hills of Italy a few months ago when he was on holiday so if you note any tone of annoyance from me it's just because he was having a lovely time and I was stuck in an office (laughs) and here's an excerpt of my chat with Ian Fulcher. I remember years ago watching a film and I remember because I'm so obsessed with my history and particular points in English 
much English and Russian history, and watching this film set in 1600s. And I remember, I don't know, I think I was early 20s, watching it and coming out being so angry because some of the characters were wearing, well, she was wearing a medieval wimple and she was wearing some 17th century blah, 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 blah. Kind of really being really high on my horse about it. And I think now designing and knowing about creative license and, and knowing that actually it's not necessarily, um, you know, you can do a job and suddenly the director were like, I don't want anyone to have hats in this. Okay, well, and you can argue your point, but there's only so much you can argue when it's just black. No, with design, that's, I think there's these layers behind the scenes that you don't necessarily know about as a viewer. 